Growing up, uh, my favorite baseball player was Hank Aaron. I'm looking around the room to see if I see any raised. Most of y'all know who Hank Aaron is, right? I'm looking at some of you. Some of you younger folks are going, no. I've heard that name. Hank Aaron was uh, someone, you know, most of us idolized some sports hero. Well, Hank Aaron was was mine. I remember sitting on the floor in our home on April the 8th, 1974, eyes glued to the TV and watching Hank Aaron hit home run number 715 to break Babe Ruth's home run record. I remember that day just like it was yesterday, watching that on TV. Hank Aaron was my hero. I would get out in the driveway. i go to the end of our driveway. If you have a gravel driveway, you know how this works. Over time, the rocks get pushed to the end of the driveway, and they kind of bunch up there. And we had these nice, round, blue, smooth gravel. Man, these things were great. And I'd fill a five-gallon bucket full of those things, like a wooden baseball bat, and I'd go and I would hit those rocks into the broom sage field across from our house. Hours. I was, I was Hank Aaron. I was hitting those rocks. My dad always taught me, he says, if you can hit the rock, you can hit anything. And so I would hit rocks all day long. I was Hank Aaron. He was my hero. However, in November of 1974... That same year he broke the record, Hank Aaron was traded to the Milwaukee Brewers. Uh, Myself and many others were heartbroken. Hank Aaron was not a Milwaukee Brewer. Hank Aaron was an Atlanta Brave. How could you do that? Yes, thank you. (laughs) For years after Hank Aaron became a Milwaukee Brewer, you know, I had Braves jerseys. And they had number 44 with Hank Aaron's name across the back. The other day, I, I Googled, just out of curiosity, Hank Aaron replica jerseys. And you know what came up? All the pictures were Atlanta Braves jerseys with number 44 with Aaron across the back. Not one single Milwaukee Brewer showed up with that number and that name on it. Uh, I still say that Hank Aaron is Atlanta Braves today. There's no doubt about that. Now you're going, what in the world? What in the world, you might say, does this have to do with whether you're really a Christian or not? To call yourself a Christian is to say that you've changed teams. You've put on a new jersey, and that says to everyone watching, here's where my loyalties lie. Think about it. What would be your thoughts if someone put on a new jersey but kept playing for the old team? That's what we do as those who profess to be Christians, and yet there's still loyalty to sin in our life. We're playing for the old team, even though we have on a new jersey. It's taking the devil's side and rebellion against God, even though you're saying you are on God's side. Now, let me say this. It is for sure that all Christians continue to struggle with sin after they're born again, right? Amen. However, the Bible says that your life... If your life displays a casual, comfortable attitude towards sin, you must stop and think about who you really are. Regardless of what jersey you think you're wearing, you need to stop and think. What John tells us here in these verses is that you are not a Christian if you love your sin. So look at the main idea here. It's kind of long. You must choose your love and then continue in your choice. You love either the world or the Father, but not both. That's what John's telling us here. Verses 15 through 16. 
He says, do not love the world because such love is inconsistent with loving the Father. It's inconsistent with loving the Father. Do not love the world, he says, or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is, what's the next word? Not in him. Do not love here is a command. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. It's also in the present tense. In other words, not loving the world is an ongoing battle for someone. The word love here is the Greek word agape. Agape has the idea of of commitment. In other words, it's not a feeling. The command to not love is a continuous fight to not commit our affections. As a Christian, you're going, yeah, that's right. I I fight all the time this, this pull toward sin. What is it that we're not to commit our affections to? He says, do not love. Do not commit your affections to what? The world. Don't commit your, your love. Don't commit your passions, your affections to the world. The word world here is used six times in these verses. That's, that's a good indicator for us. It's a good clue. We need to focus in on that. So what does the word world mean? Well, it may refer to the physical world because that's how he used, John uses it in chapter 1 verse 10. It may refer to people of the world collectively. Most of you are going, What? John 3.16, for God so loved the world, right? And then in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, both of, in both of these senses it's used to love the world collectively. There's nothing wrong with loving the world. We should enjoy God's creation and we should love sinful people who need to know the Savior, right? Yes, we should love sinful people who need Jesus. But here in John chapter 1, world refers to a system. It refers to a system with godless values, anti-God ambitions, and God-denying pleasures. That's what it's talking about. Don't love that. It refers to a system that operates on the basis of ungodly thoughts, attitudes, motives, values, and goals. Don't love that. This world system does not seek to promote God's glory. And listen to this, neither does it submit to His authority. It's in this sense that John says, you cannot love the world. You can't put on the Jesus jersey and love the world. You cannot do that. By using the word love, John means not to have an affection for not to set your, not to set your heart on this, not to invest emotionally, physically, not to get your comfort from the world, not to get your security from, not to place a higher value on this world system. Don't love a world that operates on the basis of ungodly thoughts. Attitudes, motives, values, and goals. Notice verse 15. John also says not to love what? Not only the world, its system, but the things of the world. Don't love those things. He does not mean that you must hate your house and your car. That's not what he's saying here. We're not talking about things in and of themselves, but listen, our our attitude toward those things. Things are not wrong, it's our attitude and our approach to those things. In other words, what is the ruling principle of your life? Is it your things or is it the, the giver of the things? Don't go away here from saying the preacher said it was wrong to have things, because he did not say that, right? This is yes, he did not say that. It's wrong for me to have things, but it's my attitude toward those things. Where is my love toward those things? Is my, is my love toward the giver of those things or is it toward the things? And John elaborates on those things in verse 16. He says, The lust of the flesh, 
the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's the thing. So in other words, worldliness is primarily an attitude that's motivated by uh, wrong desires. Uh, a wrongful promotion of self. He says, notice what he says, that we're not commanded to love the world and its things. We're, we're not to, to love. We're not to commit ourselves to the world's things. We're not to love and commit to what the world says. Is This is the way of life. This is what you do. And let me say this. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, Paul is writing to Christians in the book of Ephesians, the letter of Ephesians, and here's what he says, Christian, professing Christian. He tells you this, you once walked, walked means to live. You once walked following, the idea of following there is loving in relation to what we're talking about here. You once walked following the course of this world. When did you do that? Before you knew Jesus. That's what you did. You, you followed the course of this world, and this is what he says, following the prince of the power of the air. Who is that? That's the devil. That's who you followed before Jesus came into your life. You once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is not at work, and the sons of disobedience. What, what did Paul say that was? That's what you once were. What's the logic behind that? That's what you once were, but that's not what you are now. And John is taking that same idea and saying, you can't love the world. You are to love the Father. When a person becomes a Christian, he or she no longer lives to the world's way of thinking. Their, their system, they... Colossians chapter 1 verse 13, I love this verse, says we've been rescued from the domain of darkness and we've been transferred into the kingdom of Jesus. Did you hear that? Transferred. He has the idea of plucking you up, snatching you up and taking you from somewhere and putting you here. Where, where have we been taken from? People of God, we've been taken from where? We've been rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of Jesus. Look again at verse 15. John states the the main command, do not love the world or the things of the world. And then he gives us the implications. Here's the implications. If that is you, here's the implication. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is... What's the next word, church? Not. It might be in Him. There's a chance that it's in Him. What's that word say? What's not mean? Not. It's not there. So what's the logic? You love the world... You pursue the world, you profess Jesus, but you pursue the world. And that. And John says, oh, there's something wrong. The love of the Father is not in you. It's either or, not both and. And here's what the love of the Father refers to here. It refers to our love for God. In this instance, that's what it's referring to. Our love for God. John, John means that the one who loves the world does not love God. Is that simple? You love the world, you don't love God. No matter what jersey you put on. Notice the words, is not in Him. Love for God is not in you. A love for God should be the ruling attitude of our lives. Don't say you love Jesus and love the world. That's what John's saying. The only way we can overcome these strong desires of the flesh and of the world is to be consumed with loving God. You know, 
genuine born-again Christian, that's how you overcome the world. You have a pursuit. You are consumed with knowing and loving God. Notice that John uses the word Father. Words are important, right? Yeah, you know. Words are important. John uses Father to describe God here just as he did in verse 13 where he said that the children had come to know the Father. The word Father points us to God's affectionate love as His children. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Listen, church. You profess Jesus as Lord and Savior, you get God as your what? Father. And you're going, yeah, I've heard that most of my life. God is my Father. Let me try to bring that down and illustrate that for you. Being a parent is one of the greatest blessings in life. Can I get an amen? Even though today may not be one of those days where you feel like that. It really is. It's one of the greatest blessings that God gives us. Think, Mom and Dad. Think, listen to me. Think how you love your children. Think about it. Sit here right now. Think about how you love your children. Think how your heart pounds with joy over your children. You ever had that happen? Think about that. This is the way it is with God's love for you as His child. That kind of brings it, that kind of makes it a reality, right? Think, mom and dad, how you love your children, how that affects you. That's the love that God has for you and, and then some. How are we to respond to that love? 1 John 4 19 says, We love because He first loved us. It's the Father's love first for us that motivates us to love. Him. See, God loved us when what? We didn't care anything about Him. He loved us first. That's the motivating factor in, in loving Him. In response to God's great love in sending His Son to be the one who bears our sins away and adopting us as His children, loving Him should be the great delight and joy of our life. And how is it that you, the Christian, are to love God? You're like, okay... Pastor, I'm supposed to love God. How do I do that? Well, the Bible has an abundance of places. But Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all, yes, your mind. You are to love God with everything you have. You're to love not with some of your heart, not with some of your soul, or some of your mind, but with what? All. What does all mean? All. Everything. Nothing gets left on the table. We're all in, God. We love you with everything we have. John says we must not love the world. If you love the world, you don't love God. And there could be some of you who are saying, you know, I, I don't feel a whole lot of love for God right now. I, I, I believe with all my heart that I, I'm a Christian, but I, right now, I just don't feel a lot of love for God. There's two possible reasons for that. Number one, one is the possibility that you're not born again. It's likely that you are a cultural Christian, or you've inherited your Christianity from your mom or dad, or your grandparents. You're going, what? You know, I've asked people before, 
trying to share the gospel with them. You know, you're going to heaven. Do you, you know Jesus? You know, I've had people tell me, well, my daddy's a deacon in the church. I'm going, that's great, but that ain't what I ask you. Well, my granddaddy went to church all his life. My mama was a Sunday school teacher. You ever asked, had, had that conversation with somebody? They're, they're a cultural Christian. They have religious talk. And behavior, maybe, because it benefits them from a social standpoint. Some people will have talk and they'll act in a certain way from a social, just for a social advantage. That's one possibility. Maybe you're not really born again. You're, you're a cultural Christian. You've inherited religion. Uh, yesterday, Debbie and I took a day and we rode to the beach, Surf City. And I was sitting there in my chair, just oblivious, just looking. And I look up and here comes a guy with a black t-shirt on. It says, I'm going to hell because, how was it? Because all religions are wrong. And I'm going, he's exactly right. If all he's got is religion, he's going to hell. One possibility is that you've never really been born again. You, you may have never experienced the regeneration power of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. And that puts a love for God in your heart. That's what we miss. See, when you're born again, that's a supernatural thing that takes place in your life. And something happens. The Spirit of God comes in and there's a love put within you for God. Not perfection, but there's a love for God. That's why they call it sanctification the rest of the Christian life. Growing and maturing and becoming more like Christ. Here's what I would say. You need to stop being religious and sincerely seek God. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, You will seek Me and you will find Me when you seek Me with all your heart. So you can't seek God with part of it and hold on to this over here. God says that, that's not the way it works. You seek Me and you'll find Me when you seek Me with all your heart. Here's what I would say to you. You need to cry out to Jesus and He would open your eyes to know the Father today. That's what I would say to you. Matthew 11 says, All things have been handed over to Me by My Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Himself. He says, Come to Me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So if you don't know Jesus, you don't even have rest in your life. The second possibility of why there's not a love in your heart for God is that you in fact have been born again, but your love for God has simply grown cold. You remember what it means to have a heart for God. You're sitting here going, man, I remember those days. You can remember how you once knew that to know Him was better than anything the world could offer. If your love for God is cold this morning, it's because of the love of the world has begun to take over your heart and choke out the love for God. My challenge to you would be to cry out to Jesus and ask Him to give you a, a new passion for His grace. Don't be satisfied with being lukewarm. Pursue with all your heart a new passion for Jesus. So John's command challenges us here. Choose your love. Either you love the world or you love the Father. You can't, you can't straddle the fence. God the Father is a jealous God who, des who He deserves and He demands the total allegiance of those who belong to Him. 
A love for God means you follow Him. You can't, John says you can't be governed by two loves. Look at verse 16. For all that is in the world, listen to this, all that is in the world that you love and pursue, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. What is this world that, again, we're not to love? This is, an all-inclusive, this is not an all-inclusive list. But John gives us three characteristics of being obsessed with the world. Verse 16, it's characterized by three things. What are they? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Here's something very interesting about these words in this passage. Listen to this. These three aspects of temptation, listen to me, they parallel the exact same way that Satan tempted Eve. They're the exact same thing. You ever heard the saying, some things never change, right? She saw that the forbidden fruit was good for food, which was an appeal to the lust of her flesh. She saw that it was a delight to the eyes. This appealed to the lust of the eyes. She also saw that the tree was desirable to make one what? Wise. This is the appeal to the pride of life. All those things have existed since the beginning. Notice the desires of the flesh. Some of you have translations, lust of the flesh. This refers to craving, strong desires, these strong impulses. The word's kind of neutral. In other words, the object of our, our desire determines whether it's good or bad. Let me say that again. The object of our desire determines whether it's good or bad. Most often, listen to me, it's negative because its object is not the things of God, and thus the object desired becomes an idol. Flesh here refers to the tendency of humans to fulfill natural desires, listen, in a way that's contrary to the will of God. Natural desires that God gives us, but we fulfill them in a way that's contrary to the will of God. Example, sexual desires give way to immorality. I know when we say the word sex in church, it's it's like nails on a chalkboard for some people. Don't say that word in church. Can I tell you, if we said it more in church and talked about more in church, we might not have the problems that we have. Sexual desires give way to immorality. And I'll say this, any sex outside of marriage, marriage between a man and a woman is sinful. There's no debate there. Physical appetite gives way to gluttony, right? God gives us a physical appetite to eat. And we even sin in that. God gives us sleep, but we turn that into what? Laziness. God gives us all these things that are good for us, but we, we turn them in a way that's contrary to the will of God. Many, many of our natural desires are good if they're kept under the control and used in the way that God designed them. The desires for food, companionship, sex, security are legitimate when we keep them within God's limits. But they become sinful when we seek to fulfill them in our way. Notice the desires, uh, the lust of the eyes. The idea is the, the simple desires of greed and materialism. To want that which you do not have. That's what it's talking about. Anybody ever been guilty of that? Wanting what you don't have? but which others may have. It also refers to the desires that stem from faults or shallow values. 
This isn't simply referring to attraction to something forbidden. This phrase can actually refer to anything that entices the eyes that might not be wrong. But once they're seen, there comes a growing dissatisfaction until you get that thing. It becomes a lusting, coveting, a craving, a pursuit to own something. John warns us that these things are a delusion. You can have whatever you want, whatever you see, and it will produce what? Satisfaction. Is that what the world tells us? That's one of Satan's biggest lies to us. Just watch your TV, right? If you want to have satisfaction, be happy in life, what does it say? Get this. Until you get it, you will not be happy. Buy this bigger, newer, and you will be happy. Find a beautiful woman or a handsome man, nothing wrong with that, and you'll be what? Satisfied. Man, it's over with. Everything's good. Get the perfect job and have plenty of money. And your inner longings will be satisfied. You've heard that all your life, right? Some of you may be asking, should I not desire a job? Should I not desire a spouse? Should I not desire to have children? Should I not desire to have a healthy body? The answer is no, unless it is a desire for God. In other words, do you have an eye for God in everything you desire? Do you have an eye for God in everything you desire? Do you desire a job because in it you'll discover God and love God? Like, you've got to be kidding me. In my job? Do you, do you long for a spouse because you're hungry for God and hope to see Him and love Him in your spouse? Well, I just thought you got married. I didn't really think about all that. Do you desire children and a healthy body for God's sake? See, that's the difference. There's nothing wrong with wanting those things, but what's your motive in wanting them? Notice the pride of life. The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes refer to the desire to have what you do not have. The pride of life refers to simple pride over what you do have. See, we sin in what we don't have and then we sin in what we, we do have. It's the desire to be better than others so that you can glory in yourself and your accomplishments. Do we do that? You better believe it. As my dad used to say, man, we can strut sitting down. We think we've arrived. We think we have, we're the, we're, we're the people. It's, it speaks of the person who glorifies himself rather than God. He or she makes an idol of their stuff, their career, their achievements, their social standing. It's a word that literally refers to someone exaggerating or bragging in order to impress someone else. You ever been around somebody like that? John's point is, if you go on yielding to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is your way of life, you're not maintaining love for the Father. Rather, you are maintaining love for the world. Verse 17, quickly. Do not love the world because it and its desires are temporary. You have to read verse 17 slowly and carefully based on what John has just said. And the world is passing away along with its desires. Well, that's kind of disappointing, isn't it? You mean all this stuff I'm going to go after? All my desires are going to pass away? Yep. But whoever does the will of God abides for 
ever. The world is passing away. Nobody wants to invest in the future. Nobody would buy stock in a company that's sure to go bankrupt. Anybody ever done that? Hey, just invest in this company. By the way, it's going to go bankrupt in about six months. And you're like, well, here, here's everything I got. You wouldn't do that, would you? You would say, that, that's foolish. But that's what we do. No sensible person would lay up treasure. As the Bible says, where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in steal. The world is passing away. When you set your heart on the world, you're asking for heartache and unhappiness in the end. Why give your heart to the world? Why, why give your life to an empty, worthless, fake, temporary illusion? Now, don't get me wrong, I love life. Right? I woke up this morning. Praise the Lord. I got another day. Grateful for it. Right? Some of you are shaking your head. The older you get, the better them days are. Right? I'm grateful for these days that I've got. Don't give your heart to the world. The world, the evil and the deceptive scheme of Satan is passing away. And not only is the world passing away, but notice all the desires as well. If you, if John says, if you share the desires of the world, if you set your heart on the world and its desires, you will pass away as well. Did you see that connection? The world is passing away. You set your love on the world and it's passing away. Guess who passes away? You do. You're like, well, we all pass away. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about eternal separation from God. You go the way of the world, it passes away, so will you. Remember the command in verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If you love the world, it will pass away. And listen, it will take you with it. If you love the world or things in the world, as the old saying goes, there won't be a hearse or a truck with a trailer on it following you to the cemetery. If you love the world or the things of the world, you will lose them at death. All that the worldly person lives for is gone in an instant and it means nothing in light of eternity. Even if you attain or if you have attained worldly desires, what good are those things at death, right? How much are you going to leave behind? As the old saying goes, he left it all behind. Look at verse 17 once more. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. I've never turned a cartwheel in my life, but when I read this, that's what I want to do. But whoever does the will of the Father abides for how long? What lasts? What endures? The one who does, the one who continues in the will of God. He abides. He continues forever. The opposite of loving the world is not only loving the Father, but also obeying Him. Notice there, doing the will of God. Now, the will of God here does not refer to following His direction in your life. It refers to obeying His commandments as they're revealed in the Bible. There's a big difference, right? We all want to know the will of God, right? But we want to know the things that are secret. When we can't even obey the things we already know, that's what He's talking about here. Obeying God's Word. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 15, If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. In John 15, verse 10, Jesus said, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Now here's the point I want to make. You say that you're a Christian, you're a follower of Jesus. 
Okay? What did Jesus think about the will of God? What did Jesus think about obeying God? What did He think about? What did the one you claim to follow say about the will of God? Think about that. I follow Jesus, and the one I follow, here's what He says about obeying God. Are you making the connection? Here's what He says. John chapter 4, verse 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of God, who sent me and finished His work. John chapter 5, verse 30. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous. Because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. John chapter 6, verse 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. That's just three places in the Bible, all in the Gospel of John. The one you claim to follow says he desires to do the will of God. Now here's my question for you. Is that your desire? If you claim the name of Jesus, listen to me, it has to be. There's no other option. Does that make sense? I follow Jesus. Jesus what? Desire to do the will of God. Loving the Father in verse 15 and doing the will of God in verse 17 are not really separate things. You see that? They go together. Verses 15 through 17 contain one commandment and three implications. The commandment is, do not love the world or the things of the world. That's the command. And here's the first implication. The first implication is that if you love the world, you do not love God. That's what John's saying. The second implication is that if you love the world, you will perish with the world. Remember? The world's passing away. And the third implication is that if you love God instead of the world, you will live forever with God. That's what John says. God saved you, Christian, for more than just getting a ticket to heaven. He saved you to be conformed to the image of His Son. He saved you to do His will. Let me give you some application, and then we'll finish. Ask yourself this question. If I claim to be a Christian, but do not have any interest in resisting sin and growing in holiness, what does the Bible say to me? Not what you or any other person thinks. What does the Bible say to you? If you claim to be a Christian, but do not have any interest in resisting sin or growing in holiness, what does the Bible say about you? That's the question you'd ask yourself. When was the last time you did something or did not do something simply because you loved God and desired to obey Him? When was the last time that happened? That you did something or did not do something simply because you loved God and desired to obey Him? Another question. When you sin, did you see evidence of disgust in your life? Is there repentance in your life? Another way to applicate here, or make application, excuse me. If there's sin in your life, and I'm talking to Christians right now, ask God to forgive you of your sin, especially sins that you've practiced over a long period of time. And then think of a way, a tangible step you can take toward changing your behavior. See, it's one thing to repent 
But it's another thing to figure out what can I do to keep this from happening again. How many of you ever had the same sin keep cropping up in your life? Here I am again, Lord. Does God forgive? Sure He does. But at some point along the line, you and I need to go, what can I do to keep from having this sin come up in my life? Think of a way you can take a step toward changing your behavior. And here's what I want to say. Repentance as a Christian is intended to restore fellowship with God, not salvation. You cannot lose your salvation. John chapter 10, verses 27 through 30 says, No one can pluck me out of the Father's hand. No one. I believe in eternal security. I believe once saved, always saved, even though I hate that statement. Here's what I say. If saved, always saved. Because people abuse that statement. You don't repent as a Christian to be saved again. You repent to restore fellowship with the Father. That's why you repent. Here's the last drastic application. Notice I I said drastic application. There's a sin in your life. I know this will be drastic. Talk to a friend or a leader in your church and discuss your struggle with sin. You're going, you've got to be kidding me. Ask that person to help you grow and keep you accountable. Trust me. The Bible prescribes that. And here's what I also want to say in closing. If you're not a Christian, if you love your sin, you love either the world or you love the Father, but you don't love both. Let's pray.